This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Constantine the Great ruled the Roman Empire longer than anyone else other than Augustus and by his death in 337 AD the empire was transformed. He set up a power base in the east which is Constantinople became the centre of the empire at Byzantium for another thousand years. He protected the borders from invasions and he was the first emperor to be baptised, protecting Christians from persecution and promoting Christianity so strongly that soon after his death it became the empire's official religion. Later, it was even believed he donated his western empire to the papacy. With me to discuss Constantine the Great are Christopher Kelly, Professor of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Cambridge and President of Corpus Christi College, Lucy Grigg, Senior Lecturer in Roman History at the University of Edinburgh, and Greg Wolfe, Director of the Institute of Classical Studies at the University of London. Greg Wolfe, in what shape was the Roman Empire in when, <coughs> when Constantine was born in 272 AD? Constantine was born into an empire that was in recovery after a couple of generations of chaos. It had gone through maybe 60 years of civil wars, barbarian invasions, and at the time he was born, it was just beginning to put itself back together again. How long, how long had it been running? How long had the empire been running when he was born? About, about 250 years, 270 years, depending how you count it. Um, so there's a long period of peace in the first two centuries AD, and then there's a century where things begin to go wrong, and then they go very badly wrong. And then as he's born, more military emperors are beginning to put it back together again. But the empire's changed to survive. It's had to, it's had to mutate into something new. Into what? Into something that is run by generals, by armies, where the old dignified aristocracy, the Senate in Rome, are, they're sort of marginalised. They're very rich. They live a fantastic lifestyle. But the centre of power is wherever the emperor is, wherever the army is, moving back and forth across the northern frontier. When you say they're sort of irrelevant, does that mean they didn't take part in decisions about we will resist the Sasanians in the east or we will fight the barbarians in the north? What did they do then? How, well, in what way did their loss of power demonstrate itself? For the first couple of centuries, they, ne- they never took real decisions, but in the first couple of centuries, the senators were providing the generals for the armies, they were providing the main advisors for the emperors, and they, every emperor until... Um, the third century, had been a senator first. They came out of that senatorial class. And what happened to the third century is that the the emperors come more and more from people who have spent their entire time with the army. Many emperors, and Diocletian among them, um, barely went to the city of Rome. Let's talk about Diocletian. Why is he important? Diocletian, who came to power in 284, uh, when Constantine was uh, was just a child, he began to create a new structure for the empire. And it's a structure where you have more than one emperor. You have uh, a couple of senior emperors, a group of junior emperors called Caesars. Uh, they divide the military job of running the empire. It's not split into separate states. And Diocletian's the most successful of a series of these military emperors. He creates a new tax system, the army, um, the coinage. Everything is now geared towards a more sort of military, well-organised structure. And can you tell us the direct and immediate advantages of that? Well, the advantage is you've got an, em- you've got an emperor near 
the frontier, whichever frontier is under threat, whether it's the, whether it's the Rhine, whether it's the Danube, whether it's facing the Persian Empire, off in what's now Syria, uh, you've got somebody on the spot, and they have their palaces and their courts and decision making all around them. And each of these emper- emperors, with their assistants or second in command, who are called the emperors are called Augustus, the assistants are called Caesars. Each of them had independent power, or did they have to? Did they have a joint policy? Well, as, as far as we can tell, the way they always presented it when they could is that they were all working together as, as a college, as a group of emperors. Uh, inevitably, in any group of colleagues, there are sometimes tensions, and uh, sometimes these became militarized tensions. Did Constantine have any direct contact with Diocletian? I don't know whether he actually met him. He was um, he was the son of one of Co- one of Diocletian's um, nominees for the next rank, Co- Constantius. Lucy, can, Lucy Greer, can we talk about Constantine's early life? Yes. Uh, the problem with Constantine's early life is we just don't know much about it. Um, his own propaganda, as well as the propaganda of uh, those not so keen on him, tries to obscure some of the facts, even down to when he's born. But he's born 272, 273. He's born in Serbia. As Greg's saying, he's not from the traditional Roman aristocracy. Uh, he's from a military uh, background. Um, part of the controversy is over, indeed, his his own uh, status because his father, Constantius, a soldier who gets promoted, does very well in the Tetrarchy, but his mother is referred to, well, the most charitable description of her is as a stable girl or as an innkeeper's daughter. She's also referred to as being of the lowest status. Uh, there are those who think that she was not married to Constantius but was in fact his concubine, so Constantine wasn't legitimate. But these, these things are really up for debate. She was English and she ended up a saint. I don't think she... Well, there are all kinds of stories about her. English is uh, as well. Um, probably not. So she's also from the Balkans, and probably her father, probably his father meets her while on, on I'm, campaign. I'm relying on Evelyn Waugh rather than any... any, any <laughs> of any course, view. Evelyn Waugh, a sure great novelist, but yeah. not so sure about yeah, the, the, the history. Anyway, put that aside. And so he was born into an army atmosphere at a time yes. when the army was taking over. And what was his education then? Was it entirely to do with be, being in the saddle as a young boy and going into battle? Like uh, well, no, because when his father gets gets promoted, uh, he gets sent to follow uh, Diocletian uh, to court. So he goes to Nicomedia, and while he's there, he would have been educated in Greek, which he wouldn't necessarily have known before. Uh, and he clearly picks up rhetorical skills, an understanding of law, the things that are. are the things that a more traditional aristocratic uh, ruler would have had. So that's the kind of education he gets as part of this tetrarchic court atmosphere. It's a bit curious because you're you're not struggling, but you're, it, it, facts about him aren't easily available, yet he was this great empire. It was a time when people were writing stuff all over the place. Why do we know so much about him? Why do we know more about him, sorry? As I said, because he has what seems to be a very successful propaganda machine. So he censored um, stuff. Well, he, the, the date of his birth, he clearly tries to doctor, to try it. The, you asked a key question, how much time does he spend with Diocletian? Uh, clearly, it becomes a bit embarrassing that he's been closely associated with Diocletian because Diocletian has a bad reputation amongst the Christians, for one thing. And so they tried to sort of massage that he was very young when he was uh, at Diocletian's court. Uh, and there's also the hostile sources against him, but I think it's worth remembering that it's not so unusual that we don't know the details of someone's early life and that most of what we think of as facts in the ancient world are up for, up for debate. So you'd say what, what was then an aristocratic education reading 
Latin and Greek. Can you tell us a little more about that? But again, no, I, I can't really because we don't know. We do know. We do know that he learned. Let's Greek. move on swiftly. I mean, <laughs> when, when he started the time, he yes. was uh, he. The, it was the army, as I understand it, from the army, yes. who elected him as as Augustus, yes, and so they presented a, it a fait accompli. Ab- it's absolutely a fait accompli yeah. that they acclaim him as Augustus in York, and you can see that statue of him next to the Minster still today. Uh, and so he's calling himself Augustus in the West, uh, except. There then has to be a bit of a stitch up, and he's officially in a compromise um, acclaimed as Caesar, a junior emperor. But yes, on the ground in in Britain and Spain and and Gaul, he is acclaimed as Augustus. So he's really on his way at this point. But there's still other people in the field. Christopher Kelly, this um, this begins uh, an extraordinary career, or it is already known as a great commander fighting the intransigent Picts, uh, going for the Gauls and, and, and so on. Um, but the, the death of Diocletian retired, didn't he, which was nearly unprecedented. Diocletian retired the year before in May 305. Why did he do that? Well, Diocletian had a particular idea as to how unity in the empire might be restored. As Gregor said, after that third century of near-imperial collapse... Diocletian established the Tetrarchy, Greek for rule of four, in which he established a college of emperors, and they were picked as the strongest, most competent, most influential generals in the empire at the time. That's a brilliant interim solution, but it's not a solution that lasted more than a generation. The problem is, very simply put, when one of the Tetrarchs dies, or in Diocletian's case, retires, how do you replace? And in thinking about the replacement, you have to think about how you negotiate between who you think is the next best and most powerful and the sons of the previous emperors. And it's precisely that conflict between emperors' sons, of which Constantine is one, and other claimants to the throne. So the Tetrarchy was a stable way of reunifying the empire, but it was an unstable way of securing imperial succession. And that's why when Diocletian retires in 305, the empire is again plunged into civil war, and Constantine is a major player in that war. Just to try to nail it, the, his army, his father's arm, built by him himself, voted, elected him to be the Augustus. Was this a fix, or was it because he was a good commander and led them to success, therefore to loot, therefore to their own sort of fame? Well, I don't think those two things are in conflict. No. What didn't happen, if you like, was the ascent of the other members of the Tetrarchy as to who should be the new member when Constantine's father died. The army jumped that by proclaiming him immediately Augustus in York in 306. Had his record by then, had his military record by then been recognised as exceptional? Not particularly, except that in all of these cases, being the son of an existing emperor gave him unprecedented advantage and also experience of command. He is the man in the position. And I suppose in some ways, although he might have felt a long way from the centres of power in York when his father died, nevertheless there he's fairly free of rivals on the periphery of empire with a seasoned and well-disciplined army. It's a good position 
to strike for power. And did he, after that, as it were, march on Rome to try to claim total authority? I mean, over six years, he initially moves through Britain into France, has his interim capital at Trier, and then eventually moves down the Italian peninsula because the prize is still Rome. So the prize was to get was to uh, defeat his brother-in-law and an enemy, another Augustus, Maxentius, which he did at Milvian Bridge, a battle of Milvian Bridges is over the Tiber. That was. Can you tell us about that battle? But then the the added significance of that battle. The strategic importance of that battle is that it's the victory that gives Constantine possession of Rome. It establishes him as the undisputed ruler of the western half of the Roman Empire, in addition to the symbolic significance of having captured Rome. Can I turn to you then, Greg, for the other factor in that battle, which is the vision he is alleged to have had and the effect that that had on him, the battle and the future? Yet this is where the story gets really spooky, because up to then we've got a very, very successful soldier emperor, like all the others, and if he died in the battle we'd not remember him any more than the sons of Carus. Um, And in that sense, this is the point where Kotstein gets interesting, because we're told he's in the middle of the day, and he looks up at the midday sun with his troops around him, and he sees a cross shining in the sky above the sun. And that afterwards, there's a dream in which Christ comes to him and explains about how this works. And he tells him to make an image, which is probably the Cairo, that, which looks to us like a cross with a P in it. The first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, Cairo, Christ, and put this on a great big symbol, a great big um, banner, and this will lead him to win. And the, the words associated are, with this, you'll conquer. Now, the tricky bit is this story... With we this first, sign, isn't it? With this, with this sign, you'll yeah. conquer. And the tricky bit is this story actually we first know about after his death. And the person who writes about it, Eusebius, who's his biographer, has already written an account 25 years before where he doesn't mention this. And there's another account where Christ comes and gives a slightly different me- message in a dream before the battle and so on. And it looks very suspicious that... Constantine's Christianity rolls like a snowball through history. The later the source, the more Christian he is. And so how how real this vision is, is is a huge issue. And some people say, OK, it's for real. It's a solar phenomena. Um, it's a it's a weird meteorological effect, which is kind of the equivalent to saying it's a hot. It's a it's a weather balloon instead of a UFO. Um, but what 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 I think clearly is, is this, this propaganda machine Lucy's talking about, which over time has made Constantine more and more Christian in retrospect. But what does happen after that that battle is his opponent is uh, his horse throws him into the Tiber, they fish him out and and, and uh, exec- decapitate him uh, and so that's the end of uh, Maxentius and so uh, Constantine is in a position of soul and he does start quite soon to do positive things for a, a minority neglected and very often persecuted sect or many known as the Christians. So that happens vision or no vision. It does happen that even those people who want, those ancient people, sources, bishops like Eusebius, who want to present Constantine as Christian, even from childhood, they can't really find much to say that he did for the Christians until after that battle. Lucy, let's let's just talk, let's tease away at this, because uh, uh, his father, uh, Constantine's father was, as I understand it, <laughs> uh, anti, not particularly fond of the Christians. Or but on the other hand, 
he's different from Diocletian. His father is certainly... Diocletian who persecuted them. Yes, his father is not persecuting the Christians and his domain in the same way that Diocletian is persecuting his. Um, I mean, as I've said, we don't... It's boring to keep on saying we don't know about his upbringing, but it could have been uh, some... He could have been exposed to a vaguely favourable notion of Christianity earlier on in his life. But yes, clearly it's after the Battle of Milvian Bridge that we, we see he's in a position to do something, although even so, he's not doing it on his own. I was just thinking that in a sense you don't have to believe in miracles to see the Milvian Bridge as marking a fundamental change in Constantine's policy and religious understanding. There's a way in which miracle stories are strongly Christian ways of writing that story. But it's clear, for example, in a long traditional way, that Roman emperors had pledged their allegiance to particular deities before battle. And if that battle had been successful, if they'd been victorious, they proclaimed that they had a special relationship with that deity. Miracle or not, Constantine won the Battle of the Milvian Bridge won the battle against a well-defended and fortified Rome and went on with the support, as he saw it, of the Christian God. Now, whether that constitutes a conversion to Christianity in the way that we would understand Christianity or the way that Christians in the empire wanted to claim that Constantine had become Christian is another question. Can I go back to you, Lucy? That was that was very that was excellent. But just to tug away, why do you think that he uh, espoused the Christians? They were not particularly significant. They'd been persecuted for two and a half, nearly three centuries, um, and so on. As had the Jews, uh, pagan gods were still abounding, as it were. So why do you think he did it? I think this is the huge question, and we'll never see inside the soul of Constantine. I mean, the Christian church clearly has been growing. It's amassed property. It's got wealth. It's not the caricature of, you know, the sort of rabble, the rabble gang of the poor in the, in the cities anymore. There are lots of speculation. Does he see in the church, or is this just too much hindsight, a useful vehicle for, for uh, unified unified religion, unified empire. I think, I'm not sure you could say that he could have seen that in 312. There's clearly a trend in late antiquity towards monotheism. Uh, The Tetrarchs themselves had very much closely associated themselves with uh, with a particular form of religion. Uh, In Iran, the Sasanians are going in for a more monotheistic uh, religious policy. And there does seem to be some sense in which uh, monotheism... And and state power maybe work can work together, but imagine one god, one emperor. Yes, but yes, indeed. But how how it, you can say that Constantine could have seen all this in three twelve? That's a tricky question. So Christopher Kelly again, what what changed for Christians? Because a year later there was the Edict of Milan. Now that was again that was very very important. It put down uh, his his protection of and Christianity and set said on a firm basis it turned out to be the rapid and extraordinary development of Christianity. So what what changed? Why did he want to have the Edict of Milan and what was in it that was important? I suppose we have to remove one piece of grit from the historical narrative. Uh, there is no Edict of Milan. 
the text that's called the Edict of Milan was not an edict, was not issued in Milan, and was not issued by Constantine. In which case I've been misled by all three of you. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Well, to a certain extent, we've all been misled because this document was swiftly labelled by Christian writers, the Edict of Milan. The reason I think that it was reframed was it's actually a letter written by Constantine's imperial rival, Licinius, who controlled the eastern half of the empire after his meeting with Constantine in Milan. But it's one of these important moments that's been reascribed to Constantine because it's so key in the Christian narrative. And what's key about it? What's key about it is that it establishes freedom of religion for the first time in the Roman Empire in the sense that this is the first time that such freedom has been imperially legislated. Now, we need to be careful about the boundaries of freedom to religion. The document that we call the Edict of Milan establishes freedom for religions who worship divinities or the divinity, but that divinity must also support the emperors and the imperial program of the Roman Empire. So it doesn't authorise subversive or anti-imperial religious practices, but it does for the first time authorise a broad freedom of religious worship for any form of worship that supports the basic aims of the empire. Is there any, sen- <clears throat> is there any sense here that special favour is being given to the Christians in, in what is called, what is wrongly, completely wrongly, please <laughs> listeners, but, and don't read the notes of the, <laughs> the Edict of Milan. Why don't we call it the Edict of Milan? Because you all do. Um, uh, <laughs> um, um, so is there any way in which Christians are particularly and specifically and importantly favoured in this? Well, yes, in the sense that the restrictions that were placed on Christians by Diocletian and under the persecutions, particularly the churches owning property and their position as institutions, Christianity, the ownership of property by churches, is now all made completely legal. So what's important about the so-called Edict of Milan is that it reverses entirely the anti-Christian legislation of the previous generation. Christianity is now a religion of the Roman Empire that as legal and as licit as any other religion that supports the empire. Thank you. Did you do you think, um, Greg, Greg Wolf, that at that time, and now this is difficult, but I'm, and I'm not going to be silly about sources anymore because that, that they are what they are, that he knew that it was a great monotheistic religion, or did he think, Constantine, that it was just another religion and he wanted to uh, net all the religions? We can't know for certain what he thought, but as far as I see it, what they've done is they've reversed a, a, a very ill-judged policy of a decade and a so ago. Uh, we say Christians are persecuted for centuries, but they're a bit unpopular, and there are local riots, but there aren't really imperial persecutions of any scale till the 3rd century. And they the had Diocle- a hard time in the 1st and 2nd century from time to time, didn't they? It's very difficult to find to have your hard time right, in the 1st century. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's just carry on with, with what we've got. <laughs> but most Christians are so below the radar that people have barely noticed them for the first 150 years of their existence. In the 3rd century, when things get rough, probably accidentally there's a persecution of them in the 250th century organised. Then there's about 40 years of peace. Then Diocletian, at the very end of a long reign where he does lots of other things, begins to 
to home in on Christians and on other groups like the Manichaeans and this is clearly a disaster. Um, Homing against them, you mean? Yes, because there's, there's, most people don't care enough about them to persecute them. As Lucy said, in some parts of the empire, there's no evidence they really did much persecuting at all. Christians later, when they wanted martyrs, had to invent lots of martyrs to make the persecution look grander than they ever were. So I, I see this this letter as simply saying, OK, this was, a, this was a blind alley, we're going to do something different now. I think it's got a sharper edge than that in the sense that Diocletian's persecution of Christians makes coherent sense with, as Lucy's already pointed out, a push towards a more monotheistic religion and religious practice on behalf of the Tetrarchy and Diocletian. It's almost as if in these Christian persecutions, Diocletian has identified the main rival monotheistic religion to his particular form, which was based around uh, sun worship and the old cult of Jupiter. And there's a sense, I think, that the empire is leaning and thinking about different sorts of competitive monotheism, which includes Christianity. And Constantine decides to move in a different direction, but still within that arc of moving towards monotheism. So that wasn't the end of paganism by any means, Greg? No, I mean, I, I see Constantine as rather stumbling into this and c- pagan temples carry on for centuries. There are enormous temples in some parts of the world for a couple of hundred years afterwards. But then there begin to be enormous basilicas for the Christians Of course, as yes, well. it just gets added to, the, added to the lovely mix. And so you have... Lucy, <laughs> Lucy. you want to come in. Um, do you want to add to this? You... Well, this, again, this is the question, how serious does Constantine get about Christianity? How early on? He does build churches in Rome he doesn't knock down the pagan temples and build them right in the historic centre. He builds churches in strategic but still eccentric locations in the city of Rome. Um, and we're going to come to Constantinople, he builds churches there. But in the early years of his reign, I, I, I completely agree with the others. This is a, this is a bit of a smorgasbord. He moved, kept moving east and uh, the ancient city of Byzantium uh, he turned into the then modern city and recalled it Constantinople. Why did he do that? It's a good strategic location in terms of interaction with the East. It also seems to have been a good place to build to build a new city. There was a city there. He pretty much raised it to the ground, although the archaeological evidence doesn't really allow us to know this. Uh, it's we haven't really talked much about his rival emperor Licinius. It's after Licinius has he's dealt with him that he immediately founds Constantinople in 324. Uh, uh, it's officially opened, whatever the word is, in, in 330. And he does see it as a new base for himself, for his dynasty that doesn't have the baggage of Rome uh, and is somewhere where he can, he can found... Pretty early on, it's called Altera Roma, Second Rome. Very soon after that, it's called a new Rome. He is doing something different here. Constantine is a is an innovator. He sets up a, a he does set up a mirror to Rome in in quite an important way. Senates run by itself, and so on and so forth. It, it it sets out to be a very powerful counterweight to Rome, at the very least. Definitely, because there have been these tetrarchic capitals in Trier, in Nicomedia, and so on. But Constantinople does seem to be different. It gets a corn doll, which otherwise was just in Rome, as you say. Excuse me? A corn doll, so a donation of, of corn, uh, as in 
the bread that's given to the plebs. Constantinople gets one, it gets its own senate some years, some small few years after that, and then his son will give that officially the same weighting as the senate of Rome. So Constantinople is definitely different in degree. It is a new Rome, and this is why it ruffles a lot of feathers. Strategically, Christopher Kelly, how would you describe this move on Constantine's part? Uh, Frankly, I think it's a brilliant move. Constantinople is beautifully situated, access to the Balkans, access across Turkey to the Persian frontier, midway between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, equidistant between the Rhine frontier and the Euphrates. It offers significant strategic advantages not shared by Rome further down the Italian peninsula, and not surprising that emperors in the West move north to Milan and then Ravenna. But perhaps most importantly, it's a shift of the imperial capital to the centre of the wealthiest parts of the Mediterranean. It's a shift from the Latin West to the Greek East. In some ways, it's a move that is two centuries later than it might have been. When Augustus defeated Antony and Cleopatra, there were discussions then about moving the capital of the empire to Egypt to Alexandria. The logic is the same, in a sense, of moving the capital of empire to where the economic and strategic centre of gravity is, and that's better expressed by Constantinople. And he saw all that. I mean, we, we don't know what he saw as a Christian. No, we have to be serious about that. We don't know, but, but we do know that he saw these strategic advantages. Well, I think that what we can say with some comfort is that as an experienced general and as a victor in a series of civil wars that lead him to reunify the Mediterranean, he has his choice of where in the Mediterranean he will found his new capital. And I think that the choice of Constantinople, its success is certainly borne out. But then we go into the same loop that we have been in our discussions of Christianity. That is simply to say, how do we track back from something that is clearly successful to understand Constantine's motivations? Did he, as Gregor said for Christianity, stumble into Constantinople, which then happened to be a good choice, or do we say that because it was a good choice, then we ascribe to him the motive and foresight for a brilliant decision? Well, that's the question I was going to ask Greg myself. Greg, what do you think about that? (laughs) I I think I'm much happier seeing Constantine as a super successful soldier emperor who does all this reunification Christmas talked about than I am as seeing him as a religious visionary. I think when he dies in 337, he almost immediately becomes virtually a saint. In fact, as soon as he's converted, as he, as he sees the sign at the Milvian Bridge, gangs of bishops home in on him and say, right, this is one of our boys now. And there's a whole process of building a narrative about the inevitable spread of Christianity in which Constantine becomes a key figure. Um, as for Constantinople, that seems to me to be, yeah, eminently sensible. Any other soldier emperor could have done it. But if history had been a bit different and the great new capital was found at Nicomedia, uh, we'd still be looking back through sort of you know, 1,500 years of Roman history based on Nicomedia rather than on Constantinople. Lucy, we're talking about a man whom I've read in the notes from you three 
okay, <laughs> murdered his wife and son, and yet we're also talking about a man who was sanctified by the historian Eusebius when he wrote about him, twice wrote about him. Um, what was his rep- reputation towards the end of his lifetime? Is there any way of getting at what we might tentatively call a certain reality in this? I don't, I don't think we can at all. There are so many competing versions. Uh, certainly... There's the good, the good side of the story, but even the Christian authors can't get away from uh, the problem of his his wife, his wife and his son. I mean, this is one of the good, the great stories uh, from antiquity. Uh, in that he, uh, he, there seems to be the case that he suspects his his wife of having had an affair with her stepson. Uh, his son is is put to death, and his wife is suffocated, locked up in a bathhouse. Uh, this story appears very, very widely. Uh, he's clearly a very ruthless figure. He gets rid of a, many members of his family, blood family, family by marriage. Uh, his nephew, Julian, who then, of course, becomes an emperor, Julian the Apostate, the great what would it have been of late antique history, really says lots of very nasty things about Constantine as Such this. Such as? Well, I haven't really, any nasty things. Yeah, as a murderer who only murder. converts to Christianity because it's the only religion that will absolve him of these terrible, of these terrible sins uh, and definitely p- depicts him as a bloodthirsty tyrant and hypocrite. We, Christopher Kelly, um, how integral was uh, was Constantinople to the Christian Church. We can dwell a bit more on Christian Church now because we, it, it, it's, it begins quite soon, as I understand it, to gather real power, uh, have rights, uh, privileges. As, as Gregor said, the bishops invade, let's call it the court of Constantine and say, we're here. And, we, and they, as I understand from what you say, they tell him, begin to tell him what to do. These other Christians that you're favouring, they're no good. We're the real Christians. And God says to us, the real Christians, you do that. So they start offering advice. Whether he takes it or not is probably lost in a degree. <laughs> <laughs> but we know they offer it. OK. We have the Council of Nicaea. Now, before we go on to the council of Nicaea, that did happen, didn't it? <laughs> Fear not, it's a council and did it happen in Nicaea. Fear not, it's a council and it happened in Nicaea wow, in 1885. Wow. Uh, listeners, we're now on firm ground. That's <laughs> taken us quite a while. Okay. So, the reason that the Council of Nicaea is important is that we do, I think, stand here on some firmer ground than some of the areas we've discussed, particularly the vision at the Milvian Bridge. The Council of Nicaea is one of the first universal councils, that is, the bishops from all around the empire are invited at the invitation of Constantine. This is a council that is opened and chaired by Constantine, and we do have the text of the opening speech, which he delivered in Latin and was simultaneously translated into Greek. This is 326. It is. And he's... 25, sorry. 25. And he's clearly trying hard to establish some kind of unity within the church. And I think you see in Nicaea the political engagement of Constantine with Christianity. That is that I mean that he establishes in Nicaea what we still call the Nicene Creed. And that, as it were, is a political statement of Christian belief. In what way? That is that it's not firmly theologically founded. It is and remains capacious, slightly woolly and vague in some of its descriptions of the divinity 
and of the Christian narrative, deliberately so, is designed to be a document that a broad group of Christians can subscribe to. But in a sense, that's to miss its fundamental importance. Its fundamental importance is that it initiates a revolution in the way that we think about ancient religion. There hasn't been, until the Nicene Creed, a statement of belief for any other Roman religion. Roman religion has not been formulated in a way that one could stand and say, I believe, and then catalogue a series of statements of belief. I think that Constantine initiated this to establish unity in the church, but he also, by so doing, established something that has proved definitionally central to the nature of Christianity, that one should be able to say, I believe. Do, which, which people in this country did years in years out, <laughs> and beautiful translations, I'm told. Um, would, would you have anything to add to that, Lucy? I would only add that he's already got involved in a, in a dispute between rival groups of Christians in North Africa, the Donatist controversy. So he'd already sort of poked a toe in. That doesn't go well. It provokes a famous cry from one of the parties, who, one of the party that he doesn't pick, what has the emperor to do with the church, which is another way, a more negative way of looking at the problems of what happens when the emperor gets involved with the church. Was there a hangover still, Greg, from, the, from Diocletian's persecution of Christians? Were the people around the bishops thinking, well, it's, really, it's going to turn against us, it's been against us, or we've been ignored, and then at the best we assume we've been persecuted, but maybe this is just a little, little light at the end of a very small tunnel and we should button down the hatches again. But they wouldn't have been human if they hadn't wondered whether mm. this would be reversed just like Diocletian's persecution was reversed. And nothing was... For, for sure. I mean, there was no way of giving them rights forever. The next emperor could have been a, another persecutor. And that didn't happen, but, it, yeah, they must have been unsure about it. And Constantine must, can't have known what was happening. I, I like to think he went to bed after the first day of the session of the council thinking, I joined this religion for unity, and look, they've been squabbling about things I never knew existed. And... <laughs> um, and in a sense, was Constantine <coughs> hedging his bets? He doesn't get baptised until just before his death, which is something that obviously is found a bit embarrassing, and there are alternative versions of a story that try to get away with that. Yeah. And plenty of so, pagan images on coins, yeah. and, and some participation in pagan ritual. He remained Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest of Rome religion, right to his death. Mm. Isn't the business of baptism on his death to do with the fact if you repent all your sins on your death, you're cleaner than you're going to be if you repent them ten years before your death. It is a safer option, yes. yes well, so in that sense, it isn't entirely stupid, really. Um, so, um, what other things? We've been talking about this Christianity, which is obviously because it went on to be what it became. Uh, enormous business, religion, cult, movement, whatever it was, it Till it's still in it's still in the world now, quite strongly in some countries, as we all know. Um, what can you just give us an idea of one or two of the other things that he did? The reason we keep calling him the great. Um, I, we can add to religious reform, to moving the capital to Constantinople, a whole raft of other reforms that very much stabilised the empire after that century of near chaos in the third in the third century. One might point 
for example, to his coinage and monetary reforms, which established the Roman Empire really for the first time on a secure gold standard, the minting of the solidus, Latin for simply the solid one, a important gold coin that actually remains at the centre of Mediterranean uh, monetary and fiscal policy for over another thousand years. So there's the stable, there's economic stabilisation as well. Greg. Well, I, th- I think we shouldn't overestimate the recovery. Within 50 years, the empire is on the uppers again. And what we have left with uh, an empire that becomes a single city eventually, Constantinople, um, and a Christianity that spread all over the world, that these are, these are a relics of a failed project to save the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was saved for 50 years. A century later, it was in just as bad a state as it had been before Diocletian. Is this because of a fundamental... Unma- Do you agree with that, first of all, Lucy? Well, it depends which focus... If, you, if you're looking from the east, that's not, that really isn't the case. So it depends whether you're... If you accept the notion that, well, Rome has moved and new Rome is Constantinople, that keeps going uh, for an awful lot longer. As a single city with, a, with an empire that covers part of the Aegean. I think also it depends on what you expect an empire to do, as it were. Uh, Greg's definition is fine if we think politically, but if we're going to think culturally Mm -hmm. or in terms of religion, in terms of the lasting legacy of the classical world or the Roman Empire, then the impact of Constantine's consolidation of that framed with Christianity at the beginning of the 4th century has an enormous Effect. I think Constantine would have been very disappointed if he'd known what happened afterwards. I think he was a very conservative person who tries to defend and create a Mediterranean empire based on soldiers, based on good old Roman values. Yes, a new capital, a new coat of, art, of, of, of paint on the old thing. And, but what actually ends up is very, very different. And, and some of his solutions have an afterlife in other ways, but they don't really do what he wanted them to do. Well, I think I he could... would have been delighted, actually. <laughs> Uh, in the sense that he would have taken the credit for creating Christendom, for framing an ideological and political language that lasted more than a millennium. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christopher Kelly, Lucy Grigg, Greg Wolf. Next week, could you send in your ideas through website or one thing or another, a BBC In Our Time. On the 27th of October, we're going to pick one of your ideas to do the programme on, and I'm running out of time. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We didn't get... I mean, there's so much fun about Constantine. We didn't get to sort of the afterlives and the donation of Constantine. There was there was no time for that. It's obviously a forgery, but it, it century, comes from yeah, somewhere. Yeah. And it's from the story that starts quite early, this alternative version of his conversion where he is uh, healed from leprosy by uh, the Bishop of Rome, a miracle, and the Bishop of Rome, oh, Sylvester. God, to get to yes, and as he really did have leprosy. Didn't he? No, he didn't really oh have leprosy. And uh, as a result, would have been uh, the same story again. Uh, <laughs> as a result, he donates the, the West in Rome to the Church. They yeah. try to make hay out of this for some time until a clever Renaissance uh, humanist priest points out it's a forgery. Yeah. But that partly comes out of the, some of the contradictions. Why did he convert? Why was he baptised so late? Oh, no dear, he was baptised by a heretic bishop. Whoops. So that, that story has its origins in some of the problems starting in his lifetime about how to deal with the, the, the sort of messy reality of the lives of Constantine. 
What was his court like? I mean, did he have a court like we imagine courts with a big chair which he sat on and persons came yes, about? Yes, it would have been spectacular. He, well, he would sit. Everybody else would have to stand. They'd stand round him in a, in the consistorium. And there's a lot of ritual around all of these as late Roman emperors. And, and there'd be traditional people. There'd be soldiers. There'd be some senators. There'd be some uh, grandees. And then there'd be these bishops who would be whispering sweet nothings in his ear. And there's the... Christian version of Constantine's court in which it is said that Constantine occasionally gave long sermons <laughs> to his courtiers Must have been who awful. presumably worked out ways of standing without looking bored for the hour <laughs> 90 minutes in which Constantine spoke about his policies. I think we might. Actually, have... I think we could do a bit of that. I mean, somebody who stood up knew what his policies were <laughs> to speak for ninety minutes to club of it would be handy. Well, he, he was, if nothing else, he was strong and stable. You took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly certainly meetings, committee meetings, parliaments change when people have to stand. Yeah. In yeah. terms of their pithy formulation of thought. <laughs> And also their resistance to filibuster and sort of shabby thinking. So if you stand, you think more clearly and you don't want to be there too long so you don't try to disrupt the business. That's right. It would have been visually stunning, wouldn't it? Well, Anywhere any of these tetrarchs ended yes. up, they built these enormous buildings. Um, um, when we have the later ones, the, the, the images from Ravenna, which is the sort of you know, inner lineal descent from this sort of stuff, we see just how... Extraordinary, they were it's like an ancient Versailles or something. But by then, discussion has really been discouraged, and the consistorium is now known as the Silentium, and it does what it says on the can. <laughs> <laughs> Would Christians have thrived without Constantine? I think it was still in the balance. I don't think there's anything inevitable about the world or the empire becoming Christian in Constantine's day or even afterwards. Now, people are going to disagree. Some people think it spreads like a a virus through society and eventually some emperor or other is going to have to get behind it but other other religions have come and been suppressed it isn't impossible to persecute religions out of existence there aren't any manichees around anymore and um that's partly because christian roman and persian emperors had a good old mm. go at squeezing them out perhaps we would you know, christianity wasn't inevitable so um yeah maybe christians wouldn't have thought or maybe they'd just been a tiny little bit that that there are mon there are great empires like the Chinese Empire that didn't become monotheist, so we could perfectly imagine a Roman Empire that goes on to the fifteenth century uh, with dozens and hundreds of gods, and we could imagine some kind of barbarian West a bit like it. I'd cover it from a slightly different angle in the sense that what we think of as Christianity is fundamentally formed by its interaction with Roman imperial power. And I think that was important, particularly with the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. So would Christianity have thrived without Constantine? For it to become the kind of Christianity that we still recognise, it would have required some interaction with Roman imperial power at some point. It's difficult to think of Christianity, even in the modern terms, without it at some stage being appropriated as a key political ideology by a world empire. What do you think? 
Well, there's the case of Julian the Apostate. His short reign doesn't really... He's not really around long enough to help us with the sort of counterfactual. He decides not to bother persecuting Christians because he says it doesn't work. Uh, It looks like he's beginning to try and reform uh, polytheistic religion in a similar kind of way, although that's debated. But he dies, you know, he dies before we really get to see what would have happened. But I do agree with Christopher, the inter relationship between politics and religion that was always characteristic of Roman religion, that's Christianity. Well, we could think a bit about what happened to Judaism, which never did become the central religious belief of an enormous empire. And yet it survived very well. It would, it would have looked different, more fragmented, quite mm. different, uh, authority structured in a more diffuse way, but that would be perfectly imaginable. Um, Zoroastrianism, that the empire that sponsored it disappeared. There are still Parsis who regard themselves as Zoroastrians. So we could, we could imagine a Christian world which, which hadn't had that. But I, I think Christopher's right. The, the Christianity that we, that we look back down through the telescope of history and see is it's completely formed by this sort of fusion with the empire. And, and Constantine's a big bit of that. Mm. Well, thank you all very much indeed. I think the producer's coming in with one of his offers you can't refuse. <laughs> well, the first thing is, next week, Melvin, you've got Afro Ben. mentioned that. Oh, I forgot. Afro Ben. There are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.